staying just for a moment with uh, the past and its monsters, uh, next speaker uh, um, has written two novels, and her most recent novel was a huge bestseller and also winner of uh, last year's Waterstones Book of the Year Prize, as well as being nominated for numerous other prizes. Um, it's a great pleasure to welcome to the stage Sarah Perry. Hello. I'm all right. Nice to see you. Have another seat. How are you? I'm well, thank you. More educated than I was an hour ago. <laughs> Having listened. This book is, of course, set also in the past. But you're, you're not so sure, I read, about the whole idea of talking about novels as historical novels. Uh, yeah, um, there's a number of reasons behind this. Uh, firstly is the gendered aspect, that if a woman writes a book set more than 30 years ago, she is a historical novelist, <laughs> which nobody would call Sebastian Barry. Um, and there is an element of mild derision around historical mm. fiction, as if it lacks urgency, lacks relevance. Well, firstly, all novels are historical novels. If I went and wrote a book about Brexit, by the time I'd finished it, edited it, had the cover designed and it had hit the shelves, it would already be archaic. Um, and all good fiction, whether it's fantasy, science fiction, historical mm. fiction, is about now. Mm. So the best historical fiction is about the present via the past, not merely about the past. And that's the thing reading um, The Essex Serpent. That, so the characters that populate it feel familiar mm. to our own sensibilities, worries and ambivalences, but also the politics you're describing is frighteningly familiar. Yeah, one of the reasons I opted for the late 19th century um, was partly because I wanted to interrupt our idea of what the Victorians were like. So I wanted to foreground their modernity, the fact that their hospitals, their transport systems, their radiators, their dentistry all <laughs> bore startling resemblances to the way we live now. But also because I thought it would be fun to challenge the reader to say, how modern are we? You know, how far have we progressed from Victorian social justice morals mm. where one might be a, a poor person who also gambles and drinks and therefore is not eligible for a Peabody home, mm. or one is a Methodist poor person and therefore has virtue and can have, you know, damp-proof housing. You know, all of that's relatively familiar with current rhetoric, I think. Uh, yeah, particularly around the housing mm, absolutely. Uh, and the descriptions of it. Yes. And, you know, one... Th all right, and I'm, you know, I'm no historian, and I'm sure, you know, of course there's been progress, but that one does wonder... Not enough progress. No. No, absolutely not. And, you know, <laughs> poverty is lack of money. That's it. It's not lack of anything else. It's not lack of moral virtue. It's not lack of grit. It's not lack of trying. It's lack of money. And to a certain extent, lack of luck, possibly. Um, but certainly current... I mean, God, I'm sure I'm preaching the converted. Um, current government policy seems to have missed that element. You talk about that. You talk about equival this, this equivalence of morality and poverty mm. that hasn't changed. Absolutely. Particularly yeah. or enough. Yeah. Nonetheless, so it is set at a time, what's interesting about that time, I suppose, it's a huge time of change mm. in terms of knowledge. Yes. You know, thinking about the Enlightenment, the progress yeah. in medicine, evolutionary theory, the finding of these fossils. So you can really feel the steepness yes. of change. Yeah. And, and then the meeting of two worlds, really, I suppose, the increasingly scientific 
but also the religious and the fearful. That's right. Uh, well, that's one of the other things that really greatly appealed to me, is that there's something about the current uh, false um, opposition that's set up between scientific pursuit and rationalism and religion and faith. This is something that actually is, is both old hat and relatively new. You know, one forgets that the Enlightenment was really powered by belief in a rationalist God, mm. that um, if the God who set the stars in motion, the planets in motion, was an ordered and a reasonable being, then we, his creatures, ought to be able to calculate the return of Halley's Comet. Um, Halley himself wrote an absolutely shocking poem to Isaac Newton, sort of talking about the link between belief in an ordered God, not a superstitious and a dark and a stumbling one, an ordered God, and, and sort of Newton's own um, theories and works. That's a great story. Um, and, you know, we forget that really at the vanguard of natural philosophy were many Victorian rectors. You know, that with the reason we have that joke about the Victorian vicar with a butterfly net was because someone who What is that joke? I don't know that uh, Well, joke. it's just, it's on sort of postcards and, you know, it, old Victorian cartoons, a mad old cleric with sort of, you know, flowing white hair, no, running right. about the clifftops catching butterflies. One of the books that's mentioned in The Essex Serpent, I found on the shelves at Gladstone's Library. It was published in 1885 by an anonymous Essex rector. It actually says anonymous Essex rector on the high antiquity of the earth. And by 1885, random pastors in the marshlands of Essex were writing whole books on how obviously the earth wasn't 6,000 years old. So I wanted to challenge the idea that faith and reason needn't go hand in hand, which is why my vicar is a rational person. Mm. My atheist is somewhat irrational. Mm. You, you're, you have been very religious in your mm. upbringing. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah, and it... it um, my upbringing, obviously all our upbringings have a very profound influence on the way we think and the way we work, but I was essentially a biblical fundamentalist and six-day creationist until I was about 25. Mm. Um, and, um, what happened to that? What happened uh, at 25? I'm not quite sure. A kind of gradual enlightenment, I suppose. Um, there came a moment with which I'm sure many of us are very familiar when one's own logic and reasoning and intellect overtook the superstitions that we have been brought up with. And that might be your parents' politics, it might be your parents' religion, whatever it is, you sort of suddenly move past them and then you have to question which has more value. And I, th I think in, in my case, equal marriage was the was the catalyst, but the chemicals were already Painful, there. Painful, though, that transition. Uh, yes, it was, yeah. Even I mean, if you disagree with the politics or the beliefs. Absolutely. Oh, you know, I lost... I, I'm still in very good terms with my family, but I lost my home. I lost my sense of purpose. I lost, you know, an idea of being one of the elect, you know, all of mm. this stuff. So mm. that's very much in my work, I suppose. And I think the thing that... Uh, the, the, so the book's called The Essex Serpent. I don't want to, you know, give away what shape that takes but all along then there is this very strong um, sense of fear around the unknown mm. of and that's both from the rationalist vicar and the um, wondrous atheist yeah. um, and, and, the, and the village and the people around it mm. it keeps resurfacing this fear of what's out there yeah. 
you want to say a bit more about that and, uh, and yeah, why? Yeah, this is um, one of the really interesting things about this is that when I was interviewed about it, uh, so the Brexit vote happened a month after the Essex Serpent was published, and I have been interviewed on Canadian and American and British radio about my Brexit novel. This. Well, you know, yeah, and I, I'm not, I'm not psychic, oh, you know, I'm not Cassandra. I didn't know um, it, uh, at the time when I conceived the book, it seemed to me absolutely, you know, inconceivable that we might even have a referendum, never mind that it would fall out the way that it did. But there was something in the air all along. Um, and uh, there's a, a moment in the book where someone says that there was an earthquake. There actually was an earthquake in Essex in the 19th century mm. that shook loose this fear, that shook loose the Essex serpent. And I feel as if I already had a sense while I was writing and reflecting back, I can see what it was. There was something there all along in this little island there was something there, something that people are afraid of, that they think they see out of the corner of their eye, and there was an earthquake and it let it all mm. loose, which I think is quite, it's both universal and it's very British, very English. Um, I've just given a lecture say on... Say, just say a bit more about that. What, in what way particularly English? Well, um, <laughs> I have a theory um, which I stand by, even though I've only had it for about two months, which is that uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs caused Brexit. <laughs> Bear with me on this. Um, <laughs> we might have to. <laughs> <laughs> um, there is something in the English consciousness that since the Reformation has feared continental Europe. Uh, we forget that Fox was chained up beside the Bible in every cathedral in the UK, and that curates were encouraged to read it to their servants. It is, pops up in Dickens, it influenced Shakespeare, it's all the way through our national literature, and I think it's deep in our consciousness that there's something out there in the water, and it's coming for the noble Englishman. And uh, I think I need to work on it a bit further before I say <laughs> it, beyond the bounds of this friendly uh, forum, but it, it is a very English thing, I think. There's something there and it's coming for you but they're both they're all feel they're, so they're all experiencing the fear in the book and their responses to it are different forms of understanding mm. reaching for different yep. forms of understanding or ways of rationalizing their fear or explaining what's happening but both in this frenzy almost yes. of wanting to respond yep. and articulate and give shape mm. to the unknown because we all form our fears according to our own desires and horrors and promptings. So the rumour of something out there, if it's only a rumour, you put the flesh on the bones according to your own consciousness, you know. Um, our, our own minds form so much of what we're afraid of. I um, Recently I was staying in, in an ancient house in St Andrews all alone and I couldn't sleep and a heavy tread passed at the foot of my bed and the covers slipped off my feet. Now I don't believe in ghosts but I was absolutely terrified and was convinced that there was a devil in my room out of this sort of you know old fundamentalist idea and I've spoken to other people about what what would you have thought mm. that was mm. had you been there and my friends who are happy with Ouija boards and tarot cards they say you know a benevolent spirit making itself vent felt you speak to it and it moves away. There are deep rationalists who say the floorboards are thin, someone was going onto the toilet mm. past your room. Um, but we all interpret it mm. according to our own mm. 
proclivities. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Could we have a reading? Yes, you may. Which one would you like? You choose. Uh, well, I will... Oh, there's the option, isn't there? We can yes. vote on this. Yeah, yeah, you can have... I can't actually see, um, um, but I can either read you uh, some open heart surgery, which I do with fear and trembling, given the likelihood of there being a cardiac surgeon in the audience. Um, or I think he's gone, actually. Oh, good. Yeah, okay, I don't mind reading <laughs> um, Or an optical illusion. Um, hands up for surgery. Oh, <laughs> wimps. Hands okay. up for illusion. Optical illusion. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Good choice. Right. <laughs> um, the two characters in this reading are Will, the uh, vicar who is also a rationalist that we talked about, and Cora Seaborn, who is an atheist, um, but not as rational as she likes to think she is. And they've been rowing in the manner of two people who get on very well and fight as a means of finding common ground. They've gone for a walk. They reached the water. The tide was out. Mud and shingle gleamed in the westering light and someone had wreathed the bones of Leviathan in yellow branches of broom. Sedge grew in soft pale sheaves that shimmered when the wind took them a little distance away, they heard the deep, implausible booming of a bittern. The air was sweet and clear. It went in like good wine. Neither was ever certain who first shielded their eyes against the dazzle on the water and saw what lay beyond. Neither recalled having exclaimed or having told the other, look, look. Only that all at once both stood transfixed on the path above the saltings, gazing east. There on the horizon, between the silver line of water and the sky, there lay a strip of pale and gauzy air. Within the strip, sailing far above the water, a barge moved slowly through the lower sky. It was possible to make out the separate pieces of its ox-blood sail, which appeared to move under a strong wind. There, quite clearly, was the deck and rigging, the dark prow. On it went, flying in full sail, high above the estuary. It flickered and diminished, then regained its size. Then, for a moment, it was possible to see the image of it inverted just beneath, as if a great mirror had been laid out. The air grew chill, the bittern boomed. Each heard the other breathing swiftly, and it was not quite terror they felt, though something like it. Then the mirror vanished and the boat sailed on alone. A gull flew below the black hull, above the gleaming water. Then some member of the ghostly crew tugged a rope or dropped an anchor and the vessel ceased to move, only hung on, silent, wonderful, becalmed against the sky. William Ransom and Cora Seaborn, stripped of code and convention, even of speech, stood with her strong hand in his, children of the earth and lost in wonder. <laughs> Have you actually ever seen it, the Fatal Butter? Yes. Um, I saw it um, out, uh, we live in Norwich and we were going, we spent quite a lot of time out on the beach and we were just sunbathing and I saw at the very edge of the horizon three black brutalist tower blocks with jutting balconies and high stories laid upon each other. And we got the binoculars and watched, and they grew higher and higher 
and then shrank down, and then another one was built a little way to the right, and then over the course of half an hour, they just disappeared. Never seen a boat, but every now and then someone tweets me. And so says, what was that? What was, what was the illusion? Was it it's a, it's a It's a front of warm air and a front of cold air stacked up, yeah. creating refracting lenses mm. so that an object actually beyond the horizon is refracted up, and then as the, sh the air shifts... It doubles or it flips underneath. It's absolutely extraordinary. And once you know to look for it, if you live in Norfolk anyway, they're relatively common. And the fact that both of those, Will, Will and Cora, were facing this and their hands dry, it's a tremendously, I, I suppose it's reasonable to give this bit away, tender story of love between them, mm. and, but also therefore between two opposing worldviews yes. and marrying that they arrive together, and faith and... and, and, and science, mm. I guess, but through wonder, yep. again, which was our theme, of course, last year, but their, their relationship is beautifully found, but the world views are brought together. Yes. Well, I think that's because what I think is shared between all the great faiths and the great scientists and the great philosophers is the sublime. The sublime is not something that is pinned down to an academic text or to knowing how a refracting lens works. The sublime, um, as Burke tells us, is something which is greater than beauty. It's incomprehensible, even when it's comprehensible. So when you see a Fata Morgana, um, even when you know it's refracting lenses, you still stand and stare. In awe, yeah. And it's the same with a rainbow, actually. We all know how a rainbow is made. You can make one in the back garden with a hose pipe. But it's quite unusual for you to see a rainbow and not register it, at least for a moment, as something extraordinary and beautiful. So Cora and Will's moments of engagement are usually out mm. of church, out of a dinner party, out of a hospital, and on a marshland or in a forest, where the sublime transcends both of their worldviews, I think. I don't know if this was intentional or not, but the other serpent that keeps resurfacing in the book is the, um, the serpent around Aschlepius' yep. staff. So the, the, the symbol of medicine, yep. in fact, still visible on the BMA logo. Yeah. Was that so what was that something that you were intending to for that for the other serpent? Yes. of medicine present in there. Very much so. Um I am extremely interested in medicine and surgery for many of the reasons which the previous incredible speaker uh, outlined for me and which I've written about um, in a broader sense in my next book, which is, you know, Polonia said there is nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so. And medicine and scientific development seems to me to be the uh, epitome of that principle, that actually to operate on someone is to commit an act of the most savage <laughs> assault but it is being done for a good purpose, and therefore the act is read via the purpose. So that serpent around Asclepius, mm. is, have I pronounced it I right? Think so, I think yeah. so, around his staff, and, and imp, the imp, the doctor character in the mm. book, he represents, you know, he is so arrogant. Mm. He's almost psychopathic mm. in his desire to operate. Um, his serpent is a, is a sort of um, coiling in him of a desire to pursue something which, had he not had a benevolent, soul could have been turned to altogether more unpleasant ends. Mm. So his serpent is medicine, I suppose. Mm. And, that, and, and so, in a sense, talking about the, the, so the, the serpent, more well, generally the darkness that's swum over from Europe, but actually the darkness that's possible, mm. even in... Absolutely. Um, I, 
would it be all right, to, do you think it's okay, given what we're talking about, just to talk a bit about the fact that, I think during the writing of this book, or, or since, mm. you yourself haven't been very well. Yeah. Um, and I know that that's had an impact on what, how you think about writing, or indeed the world. Mm. Can you say a bit about that? Yeah, I've, I was always very, very healthy. Um, you know, mild asthma was about as dramatic as it got. And while I was writing The Essex Serpent, I began to realise that I was rather unwell. All in ways that could be read as, as a rather <coughs> oversensitive lady novelist working too hard. Um, and so I'm not tall, I'm quite robust actually. Um, and, you know, I would wake up having slept with a heart rate of 125 and would be woken out of my sleep by pain, which is, it's not until it's happened to you, you realise that being woken out of sleep by headaches and leg pain is a very, very curious thing. Um, and I, th the, the link between the, it's somatic, so the, the link between the body and the mind became totally blurred. So I would be making a cup of tea in the kitchen, and then I'm going to do something horrible, sorry, and I would be calmly stirring tea, and then I would suddenly go... <laughs> like this, as if, as if in the grip of, of a dreadful panic. Um, and I didn't know what I was panicking about, and I was eventually diagnosed with Graves' disease. Um, and as those of you who have chronic illnesses will know, it's a little bit like chipping the windscreen in your car, and then you keep going over bumps in the road and the crack gets a bit wider. So I ended up rupturing a disc, rupturing a disc again, having spinal surgery, having a third-degree burn on my leg. <laughs> Just a series of... Um, Catastrophes, and so you know, I but look no, on you were a lot of pain, of weren't you? Pre yeah. before, around the spinal yeah, surgery, well my, it, it was. I'm all I feel altered on a molecular level by <laughs> the pain I went through. I mean, I, I've, I'm writing about pain now, um, and the trouble with writing about pain is that it goes. And actually, I think of pain as like an emotion because you don't know what someone is feeling when mm. they say they're in pain. Mm in exactly the same way you don't know how someone's feeling when they say they're sad. You either take their word for it or you don't, and you may judge it, but, you know, someone's crying and they say they're sad, so you think, you're probably sad, you're crying. If they're not crying, how sad are they? You wouldn't be crying under those circumstances. Um, and the pain that I suffered left me like an animal, howling for days. And I recall sciatic pain goes down your leg, obviously, and I was taking tramadol, gabapentin, diazepam, uh, amitriptyline, paracetamol every four hours, because why not? And I remember <laughs> beating my leg with my fist in total disbelief that it could be causing me such anguish when I was so heavily drugged that my speech was slow. Had you ever had pain before? Never. No, I'd had an earache once. You know, I didn't even keep aspirin in the house. <laughs> the only pain I ever had was a hangover. And I just, I just couldn't, but it's the absolute disbelief that your body can visit upon you such savage pain that your whole world dwindles down to can you secure just for half an hour enough respite to not be moaning? And then, and then if you can, you're very happy. Um, so my poor husband had to give up work and care for me um, it, before my surgery and afterwards. And, and he remembers me lying on my front on a mattress, eating out of a bowl on the floor, almost like a dog, with the laptop on the floor, watching um, Parks and Recreation, I think, and saying, I'm fine, you can just... Li because I wasn't screaming, so I was mm. all right. Um, so I, 
I've only just started to be able to talk about it without spontaneously bursting into tears. So you're all fortunate to be spared that. In what way do you think it changed you? When you say, when you say on a molecular level, sure. But what, what's it, what has that, at the time of the great success of this book, yeah, so you're in the public eye, mm. you're feeling very unwell, you've had, an, you've had major surgery. What does it, how has it changed what you, how you view the world? Because all the themes in here are yeah. about... It's odd, isn't it? it the convergence. Was very well, a number of things happened. Firstly, my Puritan streak felt that I was being punished <laughs> for my success, you know. Um, which, uh, you know, as uh, any Puritans here will know, is very poor theology, but it, it is how I felt. Um, I also felt abjectly humiliated, and this is something I've really struggled with since because I had to use a cane for a time. And I would often be excusing myself from the table to go and take medication or, you know, unable to sit, unable to stand. And I was utterly humiliated. I found it degrading to be in possession of a body. That's, that's mm. how I felt. And uh, because I think I'd always rather thought of myself as a brain in a jar attached to a word processor. Um, and the fact that I was suddenly embodied in a totally undeniable sense, I found embarrassing. Humiliated and embarrassed with reference to a notional audience? Yeah. And also, it, it forced me to understand that if I felt it was shameful to walk with a stick in public, which I did and refused to do it until my mother insisted. Um, if I felt that was shameful, how had I viewed people with disabilities before I had one? You know, I have a slight limp now from nerve damage, which I'm learning to walk with. But for a long time, my limp was very visible. And I honestly felt that people were looking at me with pity and contempt. Why Did, had I looked at people with pity and contempt? What, why was I punishing myself for this? Do you think you had? I think I must have done, mm. and I'm utterly ashamed of it. My mother-in-law, who died about four years ago, had rheumatoid arthritis, and she couldn't brush her own hair, and she loved me to do it for her. She'd never have a daughter, and um, she always said her son and her husband couldn't do it right, so she always wanted me to brush her hair. When I was 17, 18, oh, brush Jenny's hair. You know, how shocking that a small office of kindness towards someone who loves you because they can't brush their own hair had seemed to me mildly contemptible, I suppose. I mean, it's, it's a real... It well, was something that made me face up to my worst yes. promptings. Uh, well, uh, all of our worst promptings, yeah. in fact. But the interesting thing was writing... Because I remember when you wrote about the piece in The Guardian about your illness, the, mm. the responses weren't kind, were no, they? they weren't, I mean, you know, no. we, it, if you're looking for kind responses, the Guardian comments page <laughs> usually isn't where you find them. But, the, yeah. but they weren't. Um, there wasn't much sympathy or empathy no. there. What was? No. Do you think? What do you think was going on there? Oh, I think there's a number of reasons behind it. I think that we are most unkind about failings that we're most afraid of. <laughs> That's I really, really do. Yeah. Um, so, I think everyone is afraid of getting sick. It's, a, it's a, in a very real sense, a mortal dread. And so when someone who is writing about it, it simultaneously is successful, youngish, these people are juggling envy with terror. And it came out, I mean, I wrote this piece on, on Graves' disease, and I tried to be as honest as I could. <laughs> and I ended the piece with a quote from Larkin um, about learning yes. to be kind. <laughs> and they could not delete the spite fast enough. I was called a liar, a fraud, a failure, an embarrassment, 
Um, it was just it was extraordinary. It was absolutely astonishing. Um, and I, I don't really understand why I'm learning to understand that a lot of it is about self-disgust in these commenters. Mm. But, um, but kindness is what, in a sense, you're, you, you've, been, you've been writing about this a bit, that the thing that you found from all of these encounters in your sickness is, is a search for kindness. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And um, uh, learning to be patient and be kind as if, we are looking at ourselves. It's a, this is a very, sounds like a very solipsistic view of the world, but if I'm, I'm very impatient and slightly <laughs> bad-tempered, and yeah, yeah, um, me too. when someone is using the cash, you know, the self-service checkouts, and they're fumbling with the thing, I, I, on, I honestly could strangle them to death. I really, I just, I really could. And then I think, yeah. do they ache? Is their eyesight going? Are they too hot? Are their hands shaking? Because I remember all of that, and I remember how humiliating it was to fumble and to drop things and to have to ask someone to help me. Um, so I'm hoping that it's going to gradually make me less unpleasant. <laughs> I wonder if, do you think we might get one more reading before some yes. questions? Um, I can do the surgery. <laughs> I think we should, it can't be worse than the, the real stuff that we've been listening to. Um, it's actually, it's not that gross. Um, so I'm sure you all know this, but the first successful cardiac surgery wasn't carried out until the 1940s, I think, when they worked out how, um, how to circulate the blood around the human body. Um, but there was some surgery done at the end of the 19th century on the pericardial sac. Um, and one of the characters in the Essex Serpent is based on a real Edinburgh surgeon. Um, it's a very, very sad story. Um, he, Edinburgh, of course, was where um, the great surgical um, developments and studies were taking place in the 19th century. And this young man dedicated his whole life to working out how to operate on the human heart. And eventually a soldier came in with a bullet um, and he was convinced that he could remove it. And there was a real sort of sense of ceremony and excitement. And um, the patient died on the table. And this brilliant young surgeon took off his apron and went home and shot himself. Um, because it really had been the apex of his whole life. And the pride and arrogance that a surgeon needs, if he's to do it, had all sort of washed away and left him sort of full of shame. Anyway, that's not a spoiler. But, um, <laughs> he he um, inspired the character of Dr. Garrett. A man has been stabbed. Um, Garrett is the doctor. His best friend is Spencer, also a doctor. And Maureen Fry is their nurse. The patient, immobile the rubber tube tugging at his lip to give the impression of a sneer, Garrett removed the plaster and surveyed the wound. The tension of the skin had caused it to open in the shape of a blind eye. Burton, the patient, had so little fat on him that the grey-white bone of the rib was visible beneath the severed skin and muscle. The opening was insufficient, and having first washed the flesh in iodine, Garrett took his knife and made it larger by an inch in each direction. With Spencer and Fry attending to suck and swab and keep clear his view, Garrett saw it would be necessary first to remove a section of the rib that covered the wounded heart. With a fine bone saw, he'd used it once to amputate a girl's crushed toe despite her protestations that she couldn't possibly dance in sandals as she was down to just the four. He cut the rib to four inches shorter than creation intended and put it in a pan held nearby. Then, with steel retractors that would not have looked out of place in the hands of a railway engineer, he opened up a cavity and peered within. 
We're so tightly packed, thought Spencer, marvelling as always at how bright and beautiful it was. The marbling of red and purplish blue and the scant deposits of yellow fat, they were surely not the colours of nature. Once or twice, the muscles all around the opening flexed slowly like a mouth arrested in a yawn. And then there was the heart, thrumming in its slick case, the damage seeming so slight. Garrett had promised that the cut was to the case alone and had gone no further and believed himself truthful, and now, with a probing finger, saw that he was. The chambers and valves were undamaged. He gave a little cry of relief. Spencer watched as Luke slipped in his hand, the wrist angled a little, the fingers curved, to cup the heart where he could, to feel it, because he'd always said, even with the dead ones, it was the most intimate thing and sensual, and he saw by touch as much as by sight. With his left hand, he steadied the heart, and with his right, he took from Fry the curved needle threaded with a catgut ligature so fine it would have been fit for wedding silk. Much later, Spencer would be stopped on the wards and in the corridors and asked, how long did it take? How many stitches were there? And he took to saying a thousand hours and a thousand stitches, although in truth it seemed he barely breathed in and out again before he heard the grinding of the retractor bolts and the wet slip of the instrument as it was removed. The muscles at the rim of the open cavity slammed shut and then it was only the skin being stitched over a hollow place where the rib had once been. They passed a long hour then, moving about the bedside as opiates replaced chloroform and dressings were fitted and nervously watched for slow or sudden bloomings of blood. Sister Maureen Fry, straight-backed and bright-eyed as if she could happily have done it all again and then again, passed them water, which Spencer could not drink and which Luke took in draughts that almost made him sick. Others came and went, peering curiously around the door, hoping for triumph or disaster or both, but seeing no movement and hearing nothing, went away disappointed. At the beginning of the second hour, Edward Burton opened his eyes and said loudly, I was just by St Paul's, that's all, wondering how the dome stays up. Then, more quietly, I've got a sore throat. To those who'd seen so much of life in ebb and flow, the colour on his cheek and the attempt to lift his head were as telling as any careful day-long chart of pulse and temperature. The sun had gone down. He'd see it come up. Garrett turned and left, and finding one of the many cupboards where linens were stored, crouched for a long while in the dark. A dreadful trembling took hold of him and shook him so violently that only by making a straitjacket of his own arms could he prevent his whole body from throwing itself against the closed door. Then it subsided and he began instead to cry. I think we will have to stop there. Apologies. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you very much. Brilliant. Thank you. Wonderful. It's great. Really great.